I think it goes a very long way to just kind of come to business fundamentals. What is my cash flow and can I survive off my own cash flow? And will this business actually generate cash? Or is it essentially just lighting investment money on fire to build this constant valuation, but the thing is never actually sustainable? Hey, this is Jesse here, and you're about to hear my chat with Kyle Wiltshire from Testa, which is crowdsourced quality testing built for the iGaming industry. In this first episode of 2024, Kyle and I cover a wide range of topics, including how his history in the industry led him to discover the problems that Testa is now solving, why he's decided to self-fund Testa, and the quiet strength of Vancouver as an iGaming industry hub. I really enjoyed this episode with Kyle, and hopefully you do too. But before we get going, this will be the only episode this year where I open it up like this by asking a favor. It would help me a ton if you could take 30 seconds to open Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give the podcast a five-star rating. If you're feeling extra generous, leave a review that'll help other people decide to check out the podcast too. I really appreciate the support and I appreciate you. Cheers to a great year ahead for us all. All right, we are back with episode 96 of the Betting Startups podcast, and we're also officially in 2024. So happy new year to everybody listening. And as always, I really appreciate you tuning in and supporting the podcast. We're kicking off the new year by welcoming my friend Kyle from Testa to the pod. And just to prove that a spot on this podcast cannot be bought, Kyle very graciously invited me to the Monday Night Football game in Vegas this past October, and he still had to wait three months to get on the pod. So Thanks again, Kyle, for the awesome invite. It was a great game. And thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? How were the holidays? And what's going on here on January 2nd, 2024? Hey, Jesse. Well, thanks a lot for having me. I mean, I tried my best to cut the line, but, you know, oh, well. It's been a great couple of months. The holidays were very nice. Just mostly chilling with family and friends and doing the Christmas stuff. Probably the only time of the year where the industry goes a little quiet. So that's nice. I kind of couldn't get out there and hustle if I wanted to, but... You know how it is January 1st happens and all of a sudden everybody replies and they want to get rolling. So here we are back at it. Nice one. Yeah, I was just checking this morning on LinkedIn and like seems like LinkedIn is just reawakened today. Everybody's back <laughs> and, and sort of declaring their intentions for the new year. So uh, we'll do some accountability checks in uh, about 365 days, see how everybody did. But great to have you here. You know, we've gotten to know each other fairly well over the last few months. Um, we both come from the same part of Canada. You're on the West Coast as I am, albeit I'm on Vancouver Island. You're in the city of Vancouver. Uh, saw you a few weeks ago in Vancouver, actually. Just a quick shout out and plug for Ron and Alon Segev at Segev LLP. They threw a pretty wicked iGaming meetup a few weeks ago in Vancouver. And there's a lot of industry folks in Vancouver, which we'll come back to in a little bit here, Kyle. But I guess just, you know, since then, as you said, we've had the holidays. Now we're hitting the ground running for January here. And before we know it, ICE will be here and it's back to the regular routine. I'm interested to talk about Testa specifically today, just given my own background with Pinnacle Sports and my time leading product management there. Uh, I think the pain point you and your team are addressing is very salient and really doesn't get talked about a whole heck of a lot. So excited to dive into everything. But maybe as a starting point today, it'd be awesome just to take a couple of minutes up front, have you introduce yourself to the people listening, talk a little bit about your background, your time in the industry, and basically your, your major chapters of your journey up until the founding of Testa. Sure. So my background has always been primarily technical. I grew up just hacking around with computer systems and doing kind of very Linuxy sysadmin scripting type of stuff mostly. I joined Bodog in 2009, I guess it was. At the time, they had a Vancouver office. So I trained up with them there. 
uh, and moved over to Montreal for an opportunity to kind of do probably what we'd call DevOps now, a lot of like initial system support and automation and deployment and all those type of things. So drove across the country, uh, moved to Montreal and worked in, in their office outside of Montreal there. A couple months into it, they started, you know, the kind of larger group was looking at expanding in Asia and kind of bringing out uh, more support services and everything in Asia. Nobody was very interested to go. I was all of like 23 or 24 and I just said, why the hell not? Right. So I put up my hand, first went over to the Philippines for what I thought was a one month project. Of course, a whole bunch of things went sideways and, you know, the guys, I showed up thinking I was hiring two guys. One of them didn't show up. I trained up one for a month and then he quit on me. So that was kind of my very first start. So one month project turned into three months and three months turned into a year. And before I know it was kind of indefinite. So by, I think sometime in 2010, I had gone back to Montreal, gotten rid of my apartment and everything there and, and lived in Manila. Uh, and I actually lived in Manila from 2010 to 2017. So most of my time was with Bodog there, but I left and with somebody I worked with at Bodog founded a real estate startup called Zipmatch, which we exited three or four years ago. So between Bodog and Zipmatch, just a whole ton of experience of building a company, what a larger business looks like, what a smaller business looks like, uh, raising money, all that fun stuff. For shits and giggles, I did my MBA at the same time. So like I said, I just learned a whole bunch of stuff in that compressed time frame and came back to Canada in 2017. So I've been in the industry in some way, shape or form since about that 2009, 2010 period. Awesome. Just to stick there for a second, Kyle, I mean, as I said, and, and as people know, like I, I spent my time with Pinnacle Sports, which which works in different markets around the world. Obviously, Bodog does as well. And there's a lot of people now in the post-PASPA world that that sort of cut their teeth in the industry sort of from the earlier days. And I guess I'm just curious, like at the outset here to get your perspective on the regulated market now, both in the US and Canada and other, you know, newly regulated markets around the world. And just sort of like now that you are in this world uh, with Testa and sort of juxtaposing that with your days back at Bodog, like what's just your high level like sense as to what's different, what's the same, what's your just overall read, I guess, on the industry now compared to maybe 10, 15 years ago when you got your start? You know, a lot of the problems are fundamentally the same. I think in the regulated space, you got to make sure you're compliant. You got to make sure you're partnering with the people that are ensuring that gamblers are kept safe and everything. And you've got, a, I guess, a bit more relationships to maintain to make sure that licensing and everything is clear. Some of the more, you know, old school, flexible licenses, they didn't have that amount of compliance or kind of scrutiny. But that said, it's kind of interesting that the core problems don't change too much. We can get more into specifics later on, I suppose. But I mean, things like performance and good UX and just the fundamental problem, I think, is just iGaming companies, especially, there's a lot of localization that goes into each market. So what be it the payment methods or the content or whatever. And to do this properly now at scale, to be an operator and be in dozens and dozens of markets, if you don't have any sort of feedback from the ground and you don't have the people there, you're often flying blind on quite a lot of things. Now in the gray markets, perhaps you didn't have the people on the ground for different reasons than the regulated markets, but they're all, it all looks alike. So anyway, um, my thing is just that I see a lot of similarities between the old world and the new world. I don't think it's changed all that much. We've just got, I guess, more scrutiny and, and more bars to pass to keep things safe and compliant in the new world of licensed iGaming. Nice. Well, like you say, a lot of things haven't changed, which includes, you know, a lot of 
challenges from a customer perspective. So I think that segues nicely into a bit of a deep dive on Testa itself and, and some of the solutions you and your team are bringing to market. So just as a starting point, Kyle, for the benefit of people listening, can you just give us a high concept overview of what Testa is, what you guys are doing, just what the overall value proposition is? So the elevator pitch is that Testa is a crowd testing platform, but it's built specifically for iGaming. So we didn't invent the idea of crowd testing. It's kind of a new tool in the product development toolkit that says, well, listen, I mean, if you're going to deliver things all over the world, take that kind of end user perspective into account, right? Are you localizing things properly? Are things working over their local network connections, devices? I mean, like I said, there's just all these really particular things that are happening in a given market that perhaps your software development team or QA or whoever aren't taking into account. So like end of the day, do you have boots on the ground? Do you have somebody that can kind of validate this at the very last step and say, this is how it looks. So that's what it's all about. The difference is because we know the iGaming space and all of its little particularities, we can do iGaming well. I think it's an industry that's hard to explain to a lot of others. We've got that context loaded. If you tell me I'm interested in the registration process on this, that, or the other, I'll, I'll know what you mean. A lot of general IT companies are going to scratch their head and want you to write a three-page test case to explain that, right? So we kind of come locked and loaded for the iGaming needs. That's a pain point that really resonates with me. Just to give a bit of context around that, when I was with Pinnacle, I, I was leading product management and you know, Pinnacle's product is offered in over 100 countries. And to your point, having a simple like mobile sportsbook product doesn't function or work the same way in every market in the world. And at least for us, like I really remember getting notified of issues we were having by our customers, right? Customer support was, would escalate something up to product management and say, hey, the payment method isn't working in X country or, you know, the, the registration process is failing in Y country. And we would really only like become aware of this because a customer ran into a point of friction. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's not optimal for obvious reasons. And we looked around for solutions to that. And, and you're right, like there's other crowd testing platforms out there. And we actually ended up working with one, but it took, I don't know, three months, six months to get the context loaded into their team before actually anything even meaningfully happens. So again, I can like really resonate with the pain point you're describing here. I guess just sort of through that lens, can you just talk about some of the challenges of remote testing for operators and not necessarily even in an unregulated space, right? I mean, you know, there's 50 US states, there's however many Canadian provinces, like each one has its own nuances. Can you just sort of talk about from the operator perspective, the gargantuan task of staying on top of all of this and the challenges that come with that? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're an operator, I guess we can start with, you know, if we look at regulated first, right? Think about all the different rule sets you have in each state and each license, how you can promote, how you can't, what kind of payment methods you can use. So, okay, you've maybe got some technology platform that has a quote unquote registration process, but you may have a customization for every single market that you're in. And you probably don't have staff in every single market, right? So, how does this actually function when somebody on the ground in Ohio or New Jersey or Pennsylvania wants to set up, register, use their deposit method? Did, did the deposit method go through? The key is, can you validate that this is happening externally? A comparison I like to use is Uber. Uber is kind of a lookalike scenario in my mind. We all know what Uber does, but if you go into a different city with Uber, you'll see different cars available. You've got different fees that the municipalities are going to charge or tax structures. You've got different things on surge pricing. So Uber is one of these companies where, okay, they've got some platform, but every single city they operate in is, in, is configured differently. 
iGaming, I, I see it as quite the same. There's just a ton of configuration and variability. It's not a SaaS business where you kind of set up one payment provider, one thing, and you just like launch it for an entire region. There, there's a lot of finicky kind of configuration. And the more configuration and the more changes you have market to market, the larger your surface area, the things don't go well. Like you were saying with Pinnacle, I think a lot of the time it's just kind of like, well, they go out and you look at the aggregate data and you look at customer feedback and the attitude is, well, if there's something broken, somebody will eventually tell us because there's not a lot of other ways to validate and, and, and figure that out at this point, right? So that's kind of the key in terms of what operators want to see. Obviously, those key processes like registration and depositing, the KYC behind everything, network performance, you know, it, it sounds simple, but you know, you've got your data center in one location, you're serving users in some other far off location. Do you have the right uh, infrastructure to deliver there? Are the games slow? Are the key processes and forms slow? We can help operators look at some of their providers as well. So, I mean, remember, this is a very kind of interconnected industry. Just because you're doing your job as an operator doesn't mean that your number one live dealer or slot company has necessarily configured well for that market, right? So maybe all your stuff is speedy, but then you hand them off to some slow performing game and the players don't necessarily know the difference, right? They just see that I'm on this brand and it's not working. So looking at like actually doing the same thing for operators, suppliers can be quite helpful, kind of auditing like all the people in their value chain and so on and so forth. Awesome. And then talk about the, the go-to-market strategy for test. I actually glossed over a question at the beginning, which was the origin story of it. Well, we'll sort of weave that into this answer, Kyle. But, you know, just from going to market over the last year, I mean, you've, you've really, I think, pushed Testa into sort of the forefront now of the industry. And, you, you know, you and your team are doing a lot of content, thought leadership, really trying to get the message out there. Talk me through the go-to-market strategy and kind of how you validated it all that at the beginning. Can I answer that in two parts, I guess? In the last month or two, I've been pleasantly surprised that, you know, when I brought on our head of marketing and everything, we kind of had this longer idea about having to educate the market on what we were doing and all that. I've seen that people actually get it quite quickly. It's validated quite quickly. I thought there'd be a bit more explanation of why crowd testing is helpful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But especially in the last month or so, just the amount of people inquiring out of the blue or have heard from somebody else or have just seen what I'm doing on LinkedIn, whatever, they seem to understand kind of the pain points we're solving, which is exciting because it shows that the problem's real and it shows that what we're offering is fairly intuitive as well. I thought it would kind of require more explanation. The second part of that answer to kind of give a, a bit more of the backstory is in about 2017, uh, just as I was moving from Philippines back to Canada, set up a consulting company called Gigantech. We've worked with primarily iGaming companies, but also a fair amount of non-iGaming companies on just technical optimization in Asia. So that can cover a lot of things, a lot of performance, a lot of security, anti-blocking and monitoring and all these kind of specific things that you get into in the Asia space. You go to a country like Indonesia and maybe people have slower phones and the cell towers have worse latency and, you know, there's more security concerns, et cetera. So we're very good at kind of solving those particular problems and working with companies and guiding them through it. As we were doing these contracts and growing that business, something we started to do just to help validate and prove what things looked like before and what they look like after and as we made our changes is we would hire testers in the market. So in Indonesia or Japan or whatever, we'd have real people on the ground that could show our clients, this is how your platform looks now. 
Uh, and as we made changes, we could see the differences. Something else we used to love to do and that the clients would often request is usually there would be, you know, some sort of leader in the market they wanted to grab share from. Show me how they look. Show me what they look like. This is now the benchmark, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously over time, we would work to kind of close that gap. There's something really, really powerful about being able to tell those stories and essentially just share a video of a tester opening a site or a game and just interacting as they're supposed to. And things often go wrong, right? And, you know, when the business people see this, their, their hair turns white because how much time and money and have they invested into cracking this market, flying people all around, building out an office, building out a team, and they just see things go totally sideways when an actual user is using their application, right? Sometimes those stories kind of cut through and, and make it clear that, you know, the pieces aren't quite fitting. Uh, when you have this kind of aggregate data and charts and all that, that's all great, but show me how it all links together. So anyhow, we started doing this as kind of a standard offering for any consulting we did, just because the Asian markets were kind of opaque. If you're working with something like a live streaming game or something that's constantly updating and changing, synthetic and kind of like aggregated testing don't help much. Just seeing that real user experience is very powerful. So we started doing this as basically something we would always integrate with the consulting. And over time, we saw just enough people saying, listen, I really like that data you got out of market X. Could you also do India? Could you also do Japan? Could you, you know, so they just started asking for it. And, you know, to be frank, like with a consulting business too, there's only so much work you can do at any given time. And it's all kind of hodgepodge. So just looking at it ourselves, we said like, there seems to be so much demand for this, you know, everything we do with testing, maybe we should essentially go to market and figure that out. So that's how Tested was kind of born. I mean, it's been something we've been brewing up for about a year now, but we kind of officially branded it and launched in the summer. And the feedback so far has been great. I mean, it's year one for the business as a business. But like I said, just seeing that feedback that people understand what we're doing and the pain points is real and they understand how we can be involved to help it, that's been huge. So yeah, it's, it's going to be a, the next year will be a lot of fun. Awesome. You know, one thing that stuck with me uh, when we met up in October in Vegas uh, after the football game, you know, I think we were talking about the fact that you had done some angel investing previously and that you more or less had wound down your investing activities to basically go all in on Testa and more or less invest whatever capital you're going to put in other companies into this idea. And I thought that was pretty interesting, right? I mean, you basically are making a bet on yourself and your team. And I have to assume like that internal decision-making process was an interesting one, but I guess ultimately, like you've, you've made this bet now on Testa. And I'm just curious if you can talk about that inner monologue with yourself at that time, kind of how you thought about that decision and how you ultimately arrived at it. I've done about seven, eight, eight bill investments since I moved back to Canada, sorry. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun, but it takes time. So that's, that's a big one to do it properly. You're listening to a lot of pitches. You're kind of doing DDE. You're speaking with other angels. You're trying to figure it out. So one obvious point is just as Testa became more and more real. We started building up a team and getting feedback from the market. Just the spare cycles are, are quickly disappearing. But the other is that I mentioned ZipMatch briefly. I've raised capital before. I've gotten on that treadmill. I've, I've done the whole startup thing. I think you treat money quite differently when it's your own versus somebody else's. Uh, that doesn't mean you, you know, there doesn't come a time when you don't want to raise funding for growth. But we've got the advantage of having an existing business. It's not pulling off tons of cash, but it's enough to keep investing and growing this kind of next channel. I would much rather try to do this sustainably and smartly 
uh, and grow it piece by piece for a little. And then if we get to a point where we see it's just our lack of resources holding us back, that's when capital kind of unlocks and it's a just add water type of moment, right? But I see the signs of success here and I like to just keep the cap table simple. And the, the more people you get involved, the more discussions there are and the more you're updating investors and keeping all the stakeholders in there. So again, just time and complexity, there's benefits to doing it that way. So yeah, I really don't think I'll do any angel investments this year. It's it's all test a hundred percent. And just to stick with that for a second, outside of the iGaming industry altogether, like more more generally and I guess agnostically, like I've captured more sentiment that founders seem to be more inclined now to try and bootstrap as long or as far as they can or like really defer institutional capital. Whereas, you know, you know, a few years ago, five, 10 years ago, like that was sort of the playbook that everybody was conditioned to optimize for, right? You, you raise your angel round, you hit some milestones, you raise a series A, and you, as you say, get on that treadmill. And I see almost like an aversion to that now. And I'm just sort of curious, like, do you see that being a, a wider trend right now? Or am I sort of in a vacuum over here observing that on my own? Or like, how do you reconcile, you know, maybe an aversion to institutional capital for early stage companies? I, I think... It is a trend that's growing and I think it will continue just because the last seven, eight decade, I guess, just of zero interest rate world, right? Of such cheap capital. I don't think we're going to be in that phase for quite a long time. So capital is just going to be a little more expensive and harder to raise. And that's the reality. And I think part of kind of the scar tissue I have is you, you learn about all these terms and the startup world is very based on funding because it's something that you can announce and it sounds good and they did this at this valuation and whatever, but nobody's telling you about the liquidation preference you agreed to. Nobody's telling you about all the terms that like come in these contracts and how often you need to report and like now your cost of auditing and everything up is up. So, you know, there is a time to raise capital if capital is truly what you need to grow. But I think it goes a very long way to just kind of come to business fundamentals. What is my cash flow and can I survive off my own cash flow? And will this business actually generate cash? Or is it essentially just lighting investment money on fire to build this constant valuation, but the thing is never actually sustainable. So I do think that trend is going to change just because the macro environment is, is going to make it harder to run and exit those type of businesses that can't right now, right? Things are a little bearish now, maybe not in the more broad economy, but in tech, certainly the last year has been pretty punishing. So I think the chickens have kind of come home to roost on super cheap capital to cap off the whole discussion there. Yeah, hundred percent. I want to talk about iGaming in Vancouver, YVR as we know it. Uh, like I said at the beginning here, there was a great meetup last month put on by the folks at Segev LLP. I don't know, there's maybe 40 or 50 people there on like a random Wednesday in December. And like everybody in the mm -hmm. room was somebody of influence within the industry. People flew in from outside of Vancouver at the worst time of year to come in for this event. Vancouver itself, you know, it's home to a number of influential companies in the space. I mean, GeoComply notably uh, is headquartered downtown there. But I guess I just want to maybe ask you as somebody that not only is based in Vancouver, but you chose to repatriate back to Vancouver after many years establishing uh, yourself in Asia. What's your, I guess, read on Vancouver as a hub for iGaming within the industry? And like, what is it about Vancouver for people that either haven't been or haven't spent time there? Talk a little bit about, I guess, just, yeah, the Vancouver industry scene from your perspective as somebody based there. I think a big part of why we see the kind of iGaming resurgence now is simply that if you go back to those early, early years, there were a lot of iGaming companies in Vancouver. So some of that old school knowledge was built out here. And then people like yourself, people like uh, myself, we moved elsewhere. We followed where the industry went, right? So 
it's kind of a fantastic example of how when you regulate in an industry like this, it's not just the businesses that get built. It's all the ancillary businesses and all the talent that suddenly comes back. So when I look around at, you know, Fancy Night and Strive and GeoComply and OneComply, same, same company now, like you said, I mean, a lot of these guys have quite a track record all over the place. Uh, and they've all come home because it's either Vancouver's home or it's just famously a very attractive city people want to live in, right? I mean, it's just, it's on the ocean. There's mountains. If you like getting outdoors, it's it's great. The food is good and getting even better as the years go on. So I just think there's a lot of talent that was always here and maybe came elsewhere, but some of those kind of heavy hitter figures came back and decided this is where we're going to build, right? And, and prove that you can do it here. So here we are. I was also just very kind of heartened to see how much talent the the city now has in the sector at Segev's meetup there, for sure. Yeah, 100%. Again, shout out to the Segev's for putting that one on. I, I have it on some authority. There might be another one uh, sometime later this year. So uh, we'll, we'll keep the calendars <laughs> open for that. Another thing I want to quickly check in with you on, I mean, you, you talked about your, your move to Asia and your move back from Asia. And I guess just sort of overlaying that with my own journey, right? I, I did a six-year stint in Curacao during my time with Pinnacle and, and came back to Canada uh, after that. And, you know, moving away and just getting that bigger world experience is, is a huge thing for, for anybody in their life. But coming home for me, you know, I think I, I took a lot of things for granted. And once I came home, I, I appreciated them a little bit more. And, you know, I guess the corollary to that, there was lots of things that I wish we had here at home that I experienced uh, abroad. And I guess just to put the question to you, Kyle, like what's your experience been with your journey? Again, the eight or 10 years off in Asia and now being back in Vancouver for a few years. Like what's the art to that for you as you think about the experience you had? I mean, most of my team's still in Asia. So lucky enough, I, I go over there often and uh, most of our team's in Taiwan, but people in Philippines, Singapore, I'm often in Manila. So when I go over there, I still appreciate what there is to appreciate over there. And that's just, things are busy and there's an energy and a buzz that Canada's kind of wide open. And even in our denser cities, it's there's, there's lots of quiet spots, right? There's just no quiet spots in most Asian cities. It's just it's buzzing all the time, right? And that energy is kind of infectious and it's fun. And I like that. And people are just kind of, they're open and they, they want to go and it's all about the kind of future. So I, I love that about Asia. In many ways, I go over there and it still feels like the real world. Like Canada feels like a, a bit of a strange bubble in, in some ways. My vision's kind of forever been changed. But that said, to be back and just things just work here. I never appreciated that there are 5,000 things to your day that somebody built that process and it works generally well, especially in a city like Manila, you can spend a lot of time just doing something really basic, like getting from point A to point B or, or just trying to accomplish some sort of simple task. And it takes your mental energy and your focus and that kind of compounds over time. So things work here and it's, it's just beautiful. I thought everybody in the world could just like walk up a creek and go out into the mountains and the woods. Right. So it takes living away from BC to realize just what an absurdly wonderful spot in the world it is. So I appreciate that deeply and, you know, should get out and hike and do things a bit more than I, than I have been. But I, we try to get out pretty often and just kind of drink it all in. I mean, I still walk down my street sometimes and you look at these snow capped mountains and you go, that's something most people don't have. Right. That's, that's something special. Yeah. hundred percent. I also want to ask you for a little bit of personal advice here. It's a little bit off script for me with uh, most of my questions on the podcast, but I'm taking the month of February off from hosting and 
reason I'm taking the month of February off is my wife and I are expecting our first. And I know you're a few months ahead of me on that journey with your own daughter, who uh, I believe is a few months old now. So what new dad, new parent tips do you have for me? Oh, congratulations. And man, if, if I had really good advice, I'd give it to myself first. But I mean, I'm still piecing it together. But in the early days, I mean, take care of your wife. I think it's something that often gets kind of forgotten. They go through a lot more than we do. And your focus just becomes the baby right away, obviously, right? But they're taking the the brunt of the the burden biologically, right? And with time, sleep training. We're just kind of starting that journey now. And I mean, we're getting the kind of kink worked out, but it's changed our whole lifestyle. And if you're going to run a business and, and have other things going on, it's, I think it's essential if you don't have kind of some sort of structure and schedule to when the baby sleeps and how that all works, uh, it's going to be hard. So that said, in a month, I may have totally different advice. This thing seems to switch up every four to six weeks. So who knows? Yeah, we're, we're in the middle of the childbirth prep classes right now. I almost got laughed out of the first class because uh, we had to go around and, and introduce ourselves and, and, you know, share one thing that we're hoping to get out of it. And first thing I said, as a guy who appreciates his eight hours a night uninterrupted, I said, hey, uh, I, I'm looking to get my baby to sleep through the night. And the lady just deadpan looks at me. And she says, <laughs> if you can accomplish that, you'll be the richest person in the world. So uh, I'm going to try and find a way to, to hack that. And maybe that'll be my next startup. Uh, we'll see. But I'm not going to my breath based on the uh, eight billion other people that have had to endure the same thing before me. Good luck. <laughs> I guess just looking ahead at the year, what major milestones are you focused on with Testa and I guess, you know, what can we expect to see? And, and maybe as importantly, when we get to the end of this year and you look back, like what would constitute a successful year for you and for Testa? Last year was really just about laying down the foundation, getting the team set up and kind of making sure that team was separate from the consulting business and everything was all kind of laid out. That, of course, took longer than I thought and was more complicated, but we're mostly there establishing a brand. All these things have kind of happened in the last year. This year is really just more about commercial traction and growth. We're going to be at two trade shows, which is exciting for me because I've never done a trade show. I've been to plenty. I've never sat in the booth all day. So that'll be fun. Build the booth, all those type of things. Um, my marketing experience is digital. So this will be new for me. But we want to get out there a bit more with some of the research mentioned. We had an article published with Next.io. We hope to do more there where we basically just act as our own customer, come up with an idea, go in, get some stats from a market. Uh, instead of telling you how we're awesome, I just want to show you the type of things you can uncover with crowd testers in a market. So we hope to get out there and just show more use cases for how, what crowd testing can do and how it can help. So it, it's a busy space, but I think as the iGaming market grows, there's going to be a lot more room for groups like us that maybe we fit kind of a, a niche little problem, but there's many of those problems. Um, there's a lot of content out there. There's a lot of markets. There's a lot of people, you know, operating in this space or providing games in this space. I think we're going to see a lot more businesses like ours that are just interested in how can we make things more efficient? How can we make, you know, these groups more competitive? Because there's a lot of players in the space now. It's, it's not the, the small stuff that you and I uh, maybe worked with, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, 100%. Well, it takes us to my standard closing question. I'll quickly wrap it off to you here. If you weren't working on Testa, if you weren't doing anything in this industry, if you weren't doing any angel investing or anything you've done in any previous career chapters in a parallel universe, what would you be doing instead? Hard to know for sure. I, I would like to think I'd be writing in some way. I always liked writing and, and taking kind of a, a foggy concept and breaking it down. It's one of those things where I feel like if I had invested in that skill, I'd be a lot better at it because I enjoy it. But I still take forever to kind of write down a couple words. Sometimes I, I, I obsess with it. I, I would like to think that, you know, they'd kind of flow onto the, 
off the page or onto the page if I put some time into it. But yeah, I fancy that that'd be a fun thing to do. And maybe if Testa goes well, I can give it a shot in five, 10 years. We'll see. For people listening that want to get in touch with you and or learn more about Testa, where can you point them towards to do all that? Uh, our website, testa.io, is where you can find a lot of use cases and useful information about us and, and contact us there. We're also pretty active on LinkedIn. So look up Testa on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn myself. And those are basically the, the main channels at this point. Right on, Kyle. Appreciate you joining the pod today as the first guest for 2024. And it's been good to do a deep dive on Testa and really wishing you and the team all the best and look forward to seeing you at some point later this year. Likewise. Thanks a lot, Josie.